listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, Paula and I would like to thank all of you for your continued support. If you are new to our podcast, the best ways to support us is to tell a family member or a friend. Leave a five-star review, and also consider becoming a Patreon member by going to patreon.com slash ohiomysteries. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ohio Mysteries. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Stevie Utter, and with us as always is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years at the Akron Beacon Journal writing stories just like this, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. In the early 1960s, the city of Boston was stalked by a killer who claimed the lives of 13 women in the span of about 18 months. Two years after Albert DeSalvo was stopped, Cincinnati got its own version of the Boston Strangler. From December of 1965 through December of 1966, the Queen City was haunted by a serial killer who was believed to be responsible for raping and choking to death seven local women and sexually assaulting several others who survived. Where communities often react to such crimes by locking their doors and staying inside after dark, that didn't work here. Some of the women were murdered in their own homes, so home wasn't necessarily a safe haven. Complicating this story was that the killer was black at a time that the country was teeming with volatile racial unrest. It was the height of the civil rights movement with headlines screaming that a Negro was to blame and police indiscriminately rounding up black men to put into lineups, racial anxiety peaked in the city, and a subsequent trial with an all-white jury led to violent demonstrations that brought in the National Guard. This is the story of the Cincinnati Strangler. On a pleasant day in October of 1965, Elizabeth Krekel was standing outside her apartment in the peaceful Walnut Hills neighborhood of Cincinnati. A man approached her. It was about noon. The man said he wanted to talk to the caretaker of the building, so Elizabeth led him to the basement of the complex. There, his true intent became known. He dragged her into a side room, raped her, and choked her with a double-knotted clothesline. Elizabeth was found barely alive, but she survived. It was just the beginning. Cut. I want to redo that last sentence. Elizabeth was found barely alive, but she survived. It was just the beginning. Over the next three weeks, three more women from the same neighborhood were attacked. Two were raped. The last was able to scare off her assailant by laying on a car horn. He fled the scene, leaving her with a rope wrapped around her neck. 
all four women were able to give police a description of their attacker. And though the details of their descriptions differed too much to come up with a single composite, one fact was repeated in news reports at the company water cooler and over the backyard fences in this predominantly white neighborhood. The serial rapist was black. Then, suddenly, he wasn't just a rapist. He was a killer. 56-year-old Emma Jean Harrington lived in an apartment building on East McMillan Street with her husband, Dr. Paul Harrington, who was the head of the University of Cincinnati's Aerospace Science Department. Emma Jean was well-liked, cultured, educated, a Phi Beta Kappa. A holiday wreath of dried thistles and wildflowers marked the door of apartment 19, where they lived. On December the 2nd, she took the family station wagon to go do some grocery shopping. Thursday was always grocery shopping day. And on her return, she left the bags in the car and went in search for the building's janitor, Eugene Waugh. Eugene always helped tenants carry in their supplies. She didn't find Eugene, but later Eugene found her. He was on his way to clean the ground floor office when he noticed a pair of legs sticking out of a basement restroom. It was Emma Jean. She had been raped and strangled, her clothes torn from her body and a knotted orange plastic cord left around her neck, presumably by someone who had followed her into the building. Was it the same man who had attacked the other women but left them alive? Otherwise, the M.O. was certainly the same. The women were all older and lived in apartment buildings. They were all raped, all attacked with rope. More than two dozen Cincinnati officers and detectives were immediately assigned to the case. But more stories piled up as the weeks went on. In January of 1966, a man attempted to choke a woman in her Walnut Hills basement. Her husband heard her screams and was able to chase off a tall black man in a trench coat and a hat. And then, a second death. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. The morning of April the 4th, 1966, 58-year-old Lois Dant was talking to her cousin on the phone when she heard a knock on the door of her apartment on Rutledge Avenue in the city's Price Hill neighborhood. 
She was alone. Her husband had gone to church. She asked her cousin to hold while she answered the door, then returned to the phone to say a man was looking for the building superintendent. Ten minutes later, the doorbell rang. Once again, Lois asked her cousin to hold while she went to answer it. It must be him again, she said. Lois never came back to the phone. She was found by her husband on the living room floor when he returned from church. Her head was in a pool of blood from where she'd been bludgeoned in the face with a heavy object. She'd been raped and strangled to death with one of her own stockings. Two months later, on June the 10th, 56-year-old Jeanette Messer and her black-and-white fox terrier left their apartment on Jefferson Avenue and walked two blocks to Burnett Woods. The pair always strolled the Chipmunk Hollow Nature Trail just after sunrise. It was there that she encountered the killer, who beat, raped, and strangled Jeanette with a paisley red-and-blue necktie with such force that the tie ripped in two. Soon after, another dog walker spotted a lot of flesh lying in some flattened grass. He flagged down a police cruiser to say there was a bum in his underwear sleeping in the weeds near the trail. The officer took a look around and found Jeanette, as well as her dog, patiently waiting to be found. Three murders now and police felt they were no closer to solving it than when there was just one. Police Chief Jacob Schott kept 22 officers on the case to follow up on more than a 1,000 tips that came in. Based on a black hair sample that was found on Jeanette Messer in the park, and believing there couldn't be three killers stalking the same neighborhood, a Cincinnati Enquirer article announced... Negro killed three women, police say. Now, this was the era of civil rights demonstrations, and at a time when riots had rocked many communities. Racial tension was the number one concern in the country, according to a Gallup poll at the time. So when Cincinnati police rounded up random black men, mostly from the Avondale neighborhood, and put them in lineups, Groups began to protest, but nothing was going to break the grip of fear in the city. The police chief began deputizing firefighters, meter readers, security guards, and mail carriers to enlist their help in looking for and reporting suspicious activity. At one point, it was suggested there were 5,000 private citizens helping police work on the case. A hotline was bringing in 800 tips a day. 15,000 cars were checked out. In August of 1966, a fourth murder would change the direction of the investigation. In the city's Clifton neighborhood, 31-year-old Barbara Bowman, an unmarried secretary, went out for the evening with friends, then called for a taxi to take her home from the Lark Lounge on Vine Street. Witnesses saw her picked up at 2 a.m. by a cab driver, a black man with a goatee. Not long after, Barbara was found less than two blocks from her apartment, 
lying on the sidewalk along Grand Avenue. She had been choked and stabbed in the neck seven times and died shortly after police arrived. A paring knife and a rope were lying near her, her shoes, jewelry, and purse scattered a bit farther off. The crime scene told a story. The cab she had been in was there with its wheels up on the curb. It seemed Barbara had fled the cab and been chased down. At first, it didn't seem Barbara's murder could be connected to the others. The first three victims were decades older than Barbara. She didn't match the type. And the attack was uncharacteristically sloppy. When Barbara got away from an attempted strangulation, the driver ran over the fleeing victim before stabbing her to death. Finally, this time, the killer had left an abundance of witnesses in plain sight, people who had seen Barbara get into the cab. As it turned out, the yellow cab company car had been stolen a few hours earlier from a lot on Kenner Street, but police were confident that the killer must have had some experience driving taxis. He knew how to get a key for the car. Then he interacted with dispatch throughout the night, picking up eight fares before being sent to pick up Barbara. Another cab driver came forward to tell police he picked up an out-of-breath black man just blocks from the crime scene, seemingly moments after that attack would have taken place. Using all of these witnesses, police were able to finally assemble a composite sketch of the man they were looking for. But none of this was enough to save Alice Hochhausler. Alice was 51 years old, the mother of nine, and the wife of Dr. Carl Hochhausler, the chief surgeon at Good Samaritan Hospital. They lived on Cornell Place in the posh historic Gaslight District. On October the 11th, Alice told her 22-year-old daughter Beth, who was a registered nurse working the night shift at Good Samaritan, that she shouldn't take her usual taxi ride home after work. Cincinnati women were avoiding cabs now. Instead, Alice, still wearing her bathrobe, drove to the hospital to give Beth a lift. On the drive between the hospital and her daughter's apartment, Alice mentioned that it looked like a car was following them. I wonder what he wants, Alice said. After dropping off her daughter, Alice continued home. She never made it inside. She was attacked walking from the driveway to the front door, bludgeoned so hard it knocked her dentures out. She was dragged by the ankles into the garage, where she was raped and then strangled with the belt of her bathrobe. Her husband had been inside all along. He never woke from his sleep and found Alice in the morning. Nine days later, the killer claimed victim number six. 81-year-old Rose Winstall was found beaten and strangled in the bedroom of her two-story home on Vine Street. The killer entered her home using a side door. A night latch and a chain lock were ripped from the wooden frame, suggesting he used a shoulder block to force it open. A nephew who found the battered door in the morning called police, who then entered the home 
to find Rose's body. Rose lived alone, and she was nearly blind. With two murders back-to-back in the days leading up to Halloween, officials moved the city's annual trick-or-treat night to daylight hours so everyone could be inside when the sun set. That wasn't the only change in town. Bars and nightclubs were closing earlier than normal, and hardware stores had run out of door locks. The seventh victim was 81-year-old Lula Carrick. On December the 9th, she walked three blocks to early morning mass at St. Peter and Chains Cathedral. When she returned to her downtown apartment building on West 9th Street, she was attacked in the elevator, beaten and strangled with one of her own stockings. She and Barbara Bowman were the only two victims who weren't also raped. But this time, the Cincinnati Strangler had finally made a critical mistake. Just a few hours before Lula Carrick's murder, a man attacked a 22-year-old woman named Sandra Chappas. Sandra told police she had been followed by a black man to her car, who then tried to rape her in the stairwell of her apartment building before neighbors heard her cries and rescued her. Those neighbors had the presence of mind to record the fleeing attacker's license plate number, which they quickly passed on to police. The attacker then went on to find and kill Lula Carrick, but by then, police were already researching that license plate. Four hours after finding Lula, police picked up Postil Lasky. Lasky was 28 years old, living with his mother and trying to build a career as a musician, playing guitar in a little-known group. He had a sexual assault on his rap sheet. He'd been sentenced to three years probation in October of 1965 after attacking a woman that he had followed into her Clifton neighborhood home on the pretext of asking for directions. And he was a former cab driver. The investigation revealed that when that fake cab driver picked up Barbara Bowman in October, he had given his number as 186. That was Lasky's number back when he was employed by Yellow Cab. Now, it's worth noting that at this time, police still weren't sure the taxicab murder of Barbara Bowman was connected to the other slayings. It had been different enough that it was in a league of its own. Investigators could not connect Lasky to the six murders that they had attributed to the Cincinnati Strangler. But his connection to Barbara Bowman and that taxi ride seemed pretty damning. Witnesses who had seen Barbara Bowman interacting with the fake cab driver picked Lasky out of a lineup, each of them individually. And investigators confidently arrested him on December the 15th, 1966, for Barbara Bowman's death. So... While the question remained as to whether Postil Lasky was the Cincinnati Strangler, authorities confidently moved forward 
to try him in the Barbara Bowman case. That trial began March the 27th, 1967, and it was a recipe for trouble. In a city where nearly a third of the citizens were African-American, the jury chosen was all white. There was even a shadow cast over the judge. The judge, who was randomly selected for the trial, turned out to be someone who had faced Lasky in a courtroom before. In 1958, that judge had told Lasky, for the record, men like you should be put out of society for life. These things seemed to offer the defense a really good argument for a change of venue. But when they asked for one, they were denied. Lasky would be tried in Cincinnati. There wasn't much physical evidence in the case of Barbara Bowman. The trial all depended on that eyewitness testimony. Half a dozen people who had seen him with Barbara Bowman just before her murder pointed him out in the courtroom. On Lasky's part, he produced five people to swear he was at home the time of Barbara's murder. Unfortunately for him, most of those people were relatives. But to the public, the police had made a convincing point. In the months between Lasky's arrest and the trial, the attacks had completely stopped. The trial lasted more than two weeks, after which the jury found Lasky guilty of the murder of Barbara Bowman. He was sentenced to die in the electric chair. Cincinnati was already a powder keg. Racism in the city was pretty much institutionalized. There was only one black representative on city council, only one black member of the school board, There had been public protests about the lack of black trade unionists, and there had been demonstrations about discriminatory practices at the county hospital. After Lasky's conviction, Martin Luther King himself made a special trip to the city to appeal for calm. But young people had stopped believing nonviolent protest could change their world. Lasky's conviction by an all-white jury on only circumstantial evidence lit the powder keg. The final straw was when Lasky's cousin, Peter Frakes, picketed with a sign that said, Lasky innocent, Cincinnati guilty, and police arrested him for blocking traffic. Soon after that, A rock was thrown through a church window. Then a fire was set in the street. Then a Molotov cocktail was hurled into a drugstore. Fourteen people were arrested, which led to another night of unrest. Fires, broken windows, overturned cars. The violence escalated. A black man was shot dead on his front porch. A 15-year-old white resident was badly wounded by crossfire at a gas station. The next day, 900 National Guardsmen arrived in town with shoot-to-kill orders. When everything finally settled down, there had been a total of 404 arrests, 
63 injuries, and one death. Postal Lasky was never put to death. In 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down all existing death sentences, and Lasky's term was commuted to life in prison. He was moved around various penitentiaries in the state and applied for parole on several occasions, but was denied each time. In February of 2007, the 69-year-old was once again denied parole. He died a few months later of natural causes, after spending more than 40 years behind bars. No one claimed his body. It was buried on prison grounds. Though Lasky was never indicted for any of the six murders that investigators had grouped as the serial killer's work, he remains known today and to history as the Cincinnati Strangler. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains. We'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting, and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.